the passage that we uh, read last week and expound more fully upon it today, found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. The prophet, speaking some 700 years before the birth of our Savior, says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, as we mentioned last week, this is a very familiar Christmas text. It's also Uh, one of many passages in the Old Testament that are referred to as messianic passages, uh, meaning that they refer prophetically or by way of type and shadow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And as I say, we began our exposition of the text last week. We we continue today. And the first thing that I'd like for you to notice today is the repetition of the prepositional phrase, to us, right? He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That is, to us Jews, to Israel. The promises were made to Israel. Recall that Israel was a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart for God's own possession. The Lord had set his heart in love upon their fathers, and he chose their descendants or his offspring after them. But he did this not merely for Israel's sake alone, and this was something that Israel had a difficult time grasping, that it was not merely for their own sake that God called the fathers and God chose their descendants after them. But it was as a means to an end. It was in order to bless all the nations of the earth. It is true that God revealed himself to Abraham, called him to be in covenant with himself. He revealed himself to Israel. He instructed them uh, in the law, taught them the way of righteousness and justice. He revealed to them the way of salvation through substitutionary atonement with all the ordinances of the tabernacle and later the temple. And he sent them the prophets. And he did all of this to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. All of Old Testament history is preparatory to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did all of this with the purpose for bringing Christ into the world so that the gospel, the saving message, the saving work of Christ, then would go from there to all the nations of the earth. So the calling of Israel, again, was not a means, uh, I'm sorry, was not an end in itself, but was merely a means to an end, something that Israel was prone to forget. Nevertheless, when the Messiah came into the world, he came to Israel. His life and ministry during his time on earth was spent among the children of Abraham. Jesus himself said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We don't find Jesus wandering beyond the borders of Israel except on one occasion. I believe it's just one, and then only very briefly and for a specific purpose. But then he comes back, and most of his, all of his growing up years, except for the brief sojourn in Egypt when he's an infant, but then he's in Israel, he's teaching, he's preaching in Israel, he dies in Israel, he rises again in Israel. He is sent to the people of Israel. And he told his disciples as he sent them out to preach before he suffered, he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather where to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Isaiah, speaking by the Holy Spirit, but speaking as a Jew, said to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. 
to us, the descendants of Abraham. And I say, what a place of honor the Jews have in the purposes of God. And this is something that we should never overlook and something that we should never take for granted. In Romans, Paul says, to them, the descendants of Abraham, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Jesus himself said, salvation is from the Jews. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. You don't know what you worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What a great honor God has conferred upon the Jewish people and what an instrumental role they played in God's redemptive purpose. And so this should always be very near and dear to our hearts as well. So the prophet again says, to us, a child is born, or uh, to us, a son is given. He's not merely born, notice, but he's given, given as a gift, given freely and graciously to Israel. And by extension, as we've already indicated, given to the world as well. Other children in Scripture are said to have been given by God. They're viewed as gifts and they're explicit statements where certain men and women say, God has given me these children. But this particular child that Isaiah speaks of, this son that was given to Israel was given in an utterly unique way and for an utterly unique purpose. Now, two main things occupied our attention last week. The first was the statement that the government would lie upon his shoulder. In other words, he would bear the burden of government. And we saw, as we saw, the text specifies that this refers specifically to uh, his rule on the throne of his father, David. Remember, he's in the line of succession to the throne. And in his generation, the, the throne would belong to Jesus. But we also saw how Peter indicated in his Pentecost sermon that this promise of Messiah's reign was fulfilled in the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father. And we pointed out that David's rule over the nation of Israel is a type of Jesus' rule over all the nations of the world, so that he's very properly called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in fact, this is what is implied, what is implicitly suggested in the basic Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, right? Paul says, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that confession, Jesus is Lord, is more than just a, a benign spiritual platitude, but it's a confession of the most basic reality of, of, of life, that Jesus is Lord, not just in a religious sense, but across the board, he is Lord. And all people must bow the knee to him and confess the same. The second thing that we drew out, uh, drew our attention last week to was the line that says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think about that. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And this speaks of the gradual growth of the kingdom of Christ through history. There are sometimes uh, uh, spurts of growth and sometimes setbacks along the way, but the overall trajectory of the growth of the kingdom of, of heaven is onward and upward. It's a progressive expansion of the kingdom. He is king and ruler now, but his kingdom will come into fuller and fuller manifestation as history progresses, as the gospel is preached to more and more people, and more and more people come to bow the knee to him and confess that he is Lord. We saw how this was illustrated in the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus said, which is the smallest seed of the garden plants, but when it's fully grown, it's the largest plant in the garden. 
He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we look past, look back in history and we see how the kingdom of heaven has grown over time since that first generation. Now, what I'd like to call your attention to this morning is the series of names given to the Messiah in verse 6. There are four of them. And each of them consists of a noun and a modifier. Isaiah says again, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Isaiah doesn't mean that the child to be born would literally be addressed by these names during his life on earth. And in fact, we never find Jesus spoken of in this way in the New Testament. But this is not what Isaiah meant to suggest, that he would be called these things by people here on earth, any more than he suggested that when he would be called Emmanuel, that people would actually address him that way. What he means is that the child to be born would be worthy of being called these names, that these names would be accurate descriptions of his being and of his character. Now, in our day, we usually give names to our children without a great deal of thought behind the names. Maybe we name them after our parents as a way of honoring our parents, or we name them after a dear friend of ours as a way of honoring our friend, or name them after some famous person who's notable for some good deed in the hopes that maybe our children will uh, grow into a similar character. I was uh, named after Douglas MacArthur, uh, the World War II general. Um, he was a leader of men. I'm not sure that I've lived up to quite his level of leadership, but at any rate, we give our children names, or people sometimes uh, give their children names after uh, these kind of, for these various purposes. Sometimes people give their children names just because they like the sound of the name. And sometimes, increasingly more so in our day, it seems that they give people, their children, names, uh, just names that they invent out of thin air. And you wonder, what in the world was the rationale behind that? And you think, was that an act of child cruelty? Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. But in the Bible and in antiquity generally, people gave children names with a great deal of thought. Uh, of the meaning behind the name. Uh, we find uh, in the Old Testament that God himself sometimes gave people names before they were born, or after they were born, he changed their names. Uh, for instance, we find that uh, Abram, his name was changed by God to Abraham, meaning a father of mul a multitude. Uh, Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. And again, all of these names that have been changed, the resultant name, the name that is given, has a specific meaning and a specific purpose in God's intention. Now, in this prophecy, we're told of some of the names of the Messiah, some of the names that God himself has been pleased to give him, names that reflect something of our Lord's being, his work, his attributes, um, his work, um, especially as it relates to his role as the successor of David, which is to say his role as ruler or king, the one who bears uh, the burden of government. The government rests upon his shoulder. And here are some names that are appropriate to him in this capacity in his office as king and ruler. And the first of these is the name Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, the old King James Version punctuates this with a comma between the two words and effectively makes it two names. Wonderful, his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. Um, but all of the modern English translations, I think, punctuate it correctly with the comma omitted so that it's Wonderful Counselor. 
Plus, that makes a wonderful symmetry. All four names consist of a noun and a modifier. He is the wonderful counselor. Now, the fact that he is called this speaks to the great knowledge and wisdom that the Messiah has in his role as our king. A king was expected always to know what to do to lead the nation. The words king and counselor are, in fact, used as synonyms in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4 and verse 9. Elsewhere in Isaiah, we read, The Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And this is the same idea that's behind the name that is given to the Messiah, wonderful counselor. Of all the things that could be desired in a ruler, nothing compares with the value of wisdom. Sometimes we look at our nation's rulers and we say, here's the embodiment of folly. (laughs) You shake your head sometimes and you wonder about the foolishness of some of the things that our elected leaders do. And we wonder, where are the grown-ups? Where are the men and women of wisdom who know what to do, who know what's right, and are willing to stand by it? A wise king is a great blessing to a people. It's better to have a wise king than a rich one, and it's better to have wisdom than power. Nothing is more necessary to good rule than wisdom. When God asked Solomon, or told him, ask ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. What did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. Grant your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And the Bible says that this pleased the Lord, that he asked for wisdom. And he goes on to say that most men who are would be given an open-ended promise like this. Ask me for whatever you want. Most would ask for great riches. They would ask for uh, power, victory in war, all these other things that most people associate with rule, governing. But Solomon asked for wisdom, and it pleased the Lord. Jesus is, in fact, the very embodiment of wisdom. There's a striking passage also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, that speaks of this as well, speaking of the coming Messiah. And this passage is referred to as the branch, which is a a very potent image, by the way, um, in the book of Isaiah. It talks about the root of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was David's father. And Jesus, of course, is descended from David. But in Jesus' day, um, Jesse's line was a stump. It was a bare stump. It was like a tree that was cut off to a stump, and there's apparently no life in it. But the prophet says that there would come a root out of Jesse. There would come a sprig, a branch that would develop into a branch, and it would revive the rule of David's house. And in this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And I listen to verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, these are things that are spoken of the coming Messiah. And notice the emphasis on wisdom, on, on knowledge. So we can be sure that all of the laws of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of his teaching is the, the very pinnacle of wisdom. And I really would like to emphasize this to our young people, teenagers or preteens or 
early 20s, young people, as you are growing up and as you're going out on your own in life, understand that following the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ is the best and only true wisdom. Sometimes the world will look at you and think that you're very foolish for, fo- for following Jesus. And you think, they'll think, well, that's so old-fashioned, that's so outmoded, that's so silly. But it is the very pinnacle of wisdom to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Colossians that in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the key to understanding life. Scientists sometimes look for a theory that explains everything. Um, I'll say it's Jesus, (laughs) right? We're told in Scripture that he is the active agent of creation. The Father willed creation. The Son carried out the Father's will and was the active agent in creation. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. That is, he keeps everything that has been made in being, It's not only a one-time act of creation, and then it exists and continues to exist under its own power, but that Jesus is the active agent keeping everything in existence. In Colossians, it says he's the one who holds everything together. Jesus is the theory of everything. He's the basis for creation, for continuance of creation, and for the coherence of creation. How can we not think that we can, or how can we think that we can live life without embracing this creator? And this uh, uh, great Messiah that has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in him. And so as we, uh, as you young people especially, launch out into life as a young person, always keep Jesus in the forefront of your thinking. And ask yourself the question, it's become trite, but there's a lot of truth in it. What would Jesus do? Consult Christ in every counsel that you take. And you'll never find yourself disappointed. He is the wonderful counselor. He'll give you good counsel. The second name that is given to the Messiah in this passage is Mighty God. Mighty God. And this is an extraordinary statement when you think about it. A child was to be born, a son was to be given to Israel, who is worthy to be called Mighty God. This is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ that we find in the Old Testament. His divine nature is more fully revealed in the New Testament, of course, But here is as clear an expression of the divine nature of Jesus as we could ever hope to expect anywhere in Scripture. His name shall be called Mighty God. I mean, can you imagine any other person in the Bible being referred to by this name? Abraham, for instance. Does God ever refer to Abraham as Mighty God? Or Moses or David or the Apostle Paul? The name would not be appropriate for any mere human being, mighty God. That sounds blasphemous, but when we understand that it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the nature that he possesses as uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, it's altogether appropriate. It'd be inappropriate for another individual. God very jealously guards his glory. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. How can we imagine that God would take the name Mighty God and apply it to any being who was less than divine? Again, this is a very powerful statement of the divine nature of Christ. His name shall be called Mighty God. And this explains two other obscure elements of an earlier prophecy in Isaiah, another famous Christmas text, Isaiah 7.14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and his name shall be called Emmanuel. The first obscure element there is the virgin birth itself. The world hears this in its unbelief, and it says, ridiculous, impossible, and you're, you're foolish to believe that a virgin can give birth. It can never happen. But you know what? God specializes in the impossible. Right in the very beginning, he looks out into the vast expanse of nothingness, and he says, let there be light. <clears throat> and he calls into existence a universe by the word of his power. And I've always thought among those who are religious, Christianly religious, but who have trouble with the virgin birth, I say, well, what's the trouble? <laughs> I mean, if God can bring something out of nothing, if he can create an entire universe with simply uttering the words, let there be, causing a virgin to give birth, to conceive, I mean, that's child's play. That's nothing, right? That's small potatoes in comparison with the creation of the universe. And when we understand the nature of the child to be born to this virgin, we understand that it must be a virgin birth because the child is divine. He is mighty God. He cannot have a human father. The father must be God himself. And that explains the other obscure element of Isaiah 7.14, which is his name, Emmanuel, God with us. The name is, isn't making an abstract statement like we might say here today that God is with us as we worship him, however true that is. But rather, Isaiah 7.14 is, is making a very concrete claim, saying this child is God with us. Not that he's being named so that we can remember that, oh, in the abstract and general, God is with us. No, this child himself is God with us. And this is the thing that so boggles my mind when I think about the incarnation. Think about Jesus walking the shores of Galilee or teaching in the synagogues of Israel. There in the midst of Israel is this one who looks like any other Jew might look. Looking like any other man of his age, of his people. There's nothing in his appearance that would uh, give any indication that he's anything more than a mere human being. Medieval artwork depicts him with a a halo around his head. But that wasn't how it happened in real life. There was no aura emanating from his body, no halo. He looked like you or me. But yet he wasn't entirely like you and me. He was, according to his humanity, but he was God made flesh, the Word made flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, truly God with us. It's not the fact that he was born of a virgin that's difficult to grasp, that's easy enough for the maker of the universe. What's difficult to grasp is the fact that there is a union of the divine and human nature in this person known as Jesus of Nazareth. But this is a very clear teaching of Scripture, and we accept it on the basis of faith, for God is infallible in his, what he says, and he will never lie to us. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a little later, the word became flesh. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 speaks of how he emptied himself. <clears throat> Though he existed in the form of God throughout all eternity, he emptied himself, which doesn't mean that he ceased to be, be God, but it means that he humbled himself and became a man in some mysterious way that's beyond our comprehension. In Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says that the fullness... And it's kind of a, it's a 
technical word in the Greek, the pleroma. It had a specific meaning in the ancient world and the different philosophical and religious systems. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. So he is the mighty God. Now the adjective mighty is given to us uh, it was given to give us confidence in his power to enforce his rule, right? It's, it's one thing for a king to have wisdom and a very necessary thing for a good king to have wisdom. But if he's impotent, if he has no power to enforce his rule, then what good is he as a king? But Jesus is not only wonderful in counsel, he is also mighty in power. He can enforce his rule. The third name that is given to him is Eternal Father. Now, this might be a little bit confusing because it sounds like maybe it's talking about God the Father when really it's speaking about God the Son. But the term in this context, the term Father, is used here in a, very, in a way that's very common in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. People often addressed others who had no paternal relationship to them um, as Father. Prophets were sometimes spoken of as my Father. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, in their church, the priest, the local pastor is referred to as father, so-and-so. It's a spiritual father. Paul um, said you ha- don't have, uh, you have many teachers in Christ, he tells the Corinthians, but you only have one father. That's me. Um, there's, a, there's a long-standing history in biblical terminology to refer to a spiritual leader as a father, but not only spiritual leaders, kings were often referred to as father. And as were priests, which incidentally, those are the three offices of Christ, right? Prophet, priest, and king. The term father was frequently used to denote all three of these offices. And what's emphasized in the use of the word father for these offices is that the person who holds that office ideally should have a paternal-like affection for those to whom he ministers or those over whom he rules or governs. A father should be, or a king should be like a father, have affection for his people, be, be very diligent to look out for the interests of his people. So he is uh, a father. He is Christ the Messiah, is a wise ruler. He is a mighty ruler, and he is an affectionate ruler. He loves the people that he governs. But notice also that he is the eternal father, which means that he holds his office forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No end. He will rule with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The emphasis frequently placed in these two verses on the foreverness of Christ's rule. Historically, a transition of power and government is fraught with danger. It's the most opportune time for a hostile takeover by a foreign power when maybe the lines of succession are not clearly laid out or the transition doesn't take place quickly enough or there's a period of transition where the incoming king or administration really doesn't know what they're doing. It's a very tenuous time for a kingdom. It's also a very opportune time for a coup d'etat, an internal overtake or an overthrow of of the uh, throne. But none of these things are issues for Christ because he holds his kingdom Forever, His is an everlasting dominion, one that will never end. Now, the fourth and final name that is given to the Messiah in this passage is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. War is one of the worst results of the fall. 
one of the worst consequences of sin. It's one of the greatest of all human tragedies, the death and the destruction that follows in its wake. Recently, we marked the end of the most warlike century in the history of the world, two world wars uh, with devastating, devastating consequences. I mean, war is, is hell. Uh, who, who, was it Harry Truman that said that, or was it a gen? I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Douglas MacArthur. I don't know. I remember, how many of you remember Raymond Shanley? He used to worship with us for so many years. He told me once <clears throat> um, of somebody who had asked him, tell me some good old war stories. He fought in World War II, and, and he, he said, I looked at him, and I said, there are no good war stories. I mean, the, the human cost and the destruction of property and the division that it brings in families with loss of life and just terrible, terrible stuff. But one of the greatest triumphs of the Messiah's reign will be putting a, an end to war, ushering in a time of peace. Psalm 46, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He's going to put an end to it. Another more famous passage, perhaps to the same end, Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You know, this verse is above the doors of the United Nations. It's their vision and hope for world peace. But you know what? It's not going to come through the activity of the United Nations. Sometimes the United Nations does a great deal to divide nations. And genuine and lasting peace will not come through mere human uh, means like like this, especially among those who don't acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the Messiah who will do this. He will decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that amazing? We've talked before about how um, in the old world when God brought the flood, that the specific sin for which he brought that judgment was the sin of violence. The earth was filled with violence, it says in Genesis chapter 6, and God determined to destroy it because of its violence. And I believe it means not only personal one-on-one -on -one violence, rape and plunder and murder on an individual level, but also with respect to war, which is violence writ large between nations and peoples. And God destroyed the world because of violence. But under Messiah's rule, he will restore the world, bringing peace to it. Listen to how the prophet Zechariah speaks in another famous holiday passage, not Christmas, um, but Palm Sunday. Speaks of the Messiah making his entry into Jerusalem the Sunday before he suffers. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
of speaking in anticipation of the ultimate end, the ultimate goal, the ultimate destination of the rule of the Messiah when he will cause wars to cease. Now back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, meaning that this will be a gradual thing also. Just like the kingdom of heaven is a gradual growth through history, so also the effects, the benefits, the blessings of Messiah rule, Messiah's rule will be experienced progressively and implemented progressively through history. Some kings seek glory by war and conquest. The Messiah's glory, however, will be his reign of peace. Amen. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember him on Christmas Day as a helpless babe lying in a manger. But the gospel story doesn't end with the baby lying in a manger. The gospel story goes on to tell us about how he grows up, how he ministers, how he defeats the forces of darkness, going into single combat with the devil himself in the wilderness, casting out demons, healing the sick, those who are oppressed by the devil, entering into death's dark domains, vanquishing the devil, rising again from the dead, being taken up by God as a reward for his labor up into heaven and being seated at his right hand where he is seated upon the throne of the world. And he is exhibiting all of these names here and living up to what's implied in each one of them. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, how we give thanks to you for the wonders that you have done through our Lord Jesus Christ, through your Son, through this child that was given, the son that was born. Our Father, we praise you. We give thanks to you. We pray that you would help us to keep these things in mind, that Jesus is no longer the helpless babe. He is, nor is he merely the man crucified, but he is the man resurrected from the dead, seated at your right hand and coming again. And our Father, help us to play the part that you would have us to play. Help us to fulfill our calling responsibly. Lord, to bear witness to his wise and gracious rule, to invite other people to come and to receive the benefits of his rule, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with you, peace with you through his blood. And our Father, we pray that we might live to see a time of great renewing and a time of great revival, not only within the church, but, Father, a time when the kingdom would expand to a degree that we would never think possible within our own lifetime so that more and more people might come under the gracious sway of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. As our worship leaders come forward, would you stand with me and let's uh, sing number 269, How Great Our Joy.
Keeping on that theme of joy from Isaiah chapter 55. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Amen. Go in peace.